From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, molecular markers for keratoconus and tigacins in children. We get an array of these uh, proteins that we can identify in the tears that may be able to be used as a diagnosis, but also, probably more importantly, as an indication of disease progression. First this. Imagine a library of 100,000 books in subjects that interest you and subjects that don't. The books of this library are arranged, bizarrely, by publisher and date of publication. How useful would such a library be to you? How soon would you give up on trying to find a book that really interested you? ASCRS's impressive online content has been a little like that library until now. The new ASCRS Center for Learning at ASCRS.org learn organizes the vast and growing ASCRS online content, podcasts, and CME offerings into a unified, searchable whole so that we can find the material we want in the format that best suits us. Go to ASCRS.org and click on Center for Learning or go directly to ASCRS.org slash learn. I had the opportunity to interview a number of people advancing the forefront of ophthalmology during the Asia Cornea Society's biennial meeting in Seoul, South Korea. Edited versions of these interviews are presented on the iWorld Replay website as brief videos. I'm going to present these interviews in their entirety over a number of podcasts. Today, we'll hear from Jared Sutton on molecular markers for keratoconus and Vishal Janji on tigacins in children. I'm here with Jared Sutton. Jared, you give a really, really interesting talk, interesting work on the role that epithelium uh, plays in the context of pathology, uh, uh, the, 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 the histopathology of keratoconus. And I, I want to sort of leave it like that because it, it, it wasn't clear to, to me whether the epithelial changes that have been demonstrated in the past, prior to your talk, were uh, the result of the underlying pathology or were somehow involved in the, the, the pathogenesis. So can I have you sort of flush out this, uh, flush out this, to- not flush out, flush out this topic for us? I think the first thing to say is that we really don't know what causes keratoconus and uh, last year at the Delphi panel um, where we tried to get a consensus on the causes and the treatment of keratoconus it's fair to say that there was very little consensus on the pathophysiology and our work really stemmed from the fact that we observed uh, in the histopathology as you mentioned that there are significant changes in the epithelium. People tend to concentrate in keratoconus on the tissue loss in the stroma, which of course is very important. But that cell apoptosis that occurs with the keratocytes is also occurring and occurring earlier in the basal level uh, of the epithelium. And so we decided to look at that and see whether we could identify any changes in the epithelium that were specific to keratoconus and that might actually allow us uh, to identify some therapeutic targets. And over the last three or four years, uh, my group uh, in Sydney, uh, the Sydney Eye Hospital, Sydney University, uh, especially Dr Jing Jing Yu, uh, who's our postdoc PhD student, uh, 
or scientists I should say now, she and I have developed uh, a protocol for looking at various pathways uh, in the epithelium. We've looked at the Wnt pathway, which is an ubiquit ubiquitous pathway which is involved in cell proliferation, migration and also apoptosis as well as uh, looking at a number of other new pathways using um, RNA sequencing. And we've identified three or four pathways now which we think um, could be targeted uh, for keratoconus. And back to your question, which is going to be, is that a secondary finding or is it a primary finding? If you actually look at the epithelium and in any cornea, if you actually remove the epithelium, which we do in refractive surgical procedures like PRK, what you'll find is that the underlying cells the keratocytes will die. And so they, 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 requ they require a signal from that epithelium in order to survive. And so we hypothesize that that signal is abnormal because the keratoconus epithelium is abnormal. And that'll be the next stage of our research. We've identified that there are clear abnormalities in cellular proliferation, in migration, in differentiation. And our next step will be cold culture, um, which we're setting up with uh, Auckland University, and uh, to look at that communication a little bit more uh, closely. Are, are, are these... Um, are, are these findings, are these, are these markers, for want of a better word, although they're really not markers, uh, are they expressed in all keratoconus corneas or, or just in a, a particular subset? Or Yeah, that's a good question. Um, they're, they're expressed in most, but the expression is variable. And I think that's a really good point about keratoconus. We, we tend to think about keratoconus as being just a single disease, but we don't know that. The phenotype, which is what we're really looking at, you know, does look similar in many patients, but perhaps what we're looking at is the end stage of a number of different disease processes that we call keratoconus, and that would um, explain some of the heterogeneity that we find in our experiments. But, I mean, the, the results are fairly clear. I mean, they're highly statistically significant that these changes are real, and, uh, and, and in fact, all of these pathways that we've identified that are abnormal in, the, in keratoconus uh, have been identified as being abnormal in other disease processes within epithelium. And so it's not as if we are, we'll be trying to identify um, uh, thera therapies for de novo. We can actually borrow some of the work from, uh, for example, uh, some of the intestinal work that's been done. These pathways are almost identical to what we're seeing in that's keratoconus. That's really interesting. Yeah. Really, really neat stuff. Um, are, are how specific are these findings to keratoconus, and can they lead to uh, to to diagnostics that we can use clinically? Yeah, that's a that's another great question. I guess the, we haven't really looked at other disease processes. We know that um, a number of these pathways, uh, for example, the notch pathway, has been looked at in the cornea, so in normal cornea, and so we know what it looks like in the normal cornea, and we have a comparison to that. But other corneal diseases, such as Fuchs dystrophy, for example, we haven't looked at, but I think that that is an avenue of research that we would consider. In terms of diagnostics, I think that the one of the things that we have identified and been looking at is tear proteomics. And we've identified some of these markers, and I think that, that in, in that sense the word marker is correct, in keratoconus. And so what we would hope to do eventually is actually get an array of these uh, proteins that we can identify in the tears that may be able to uh, be used as a diagnosis, but also, probably more importantly, 
as an indication of disease progression because with cross-linking, co collagen cross-linking, which we have available to treat keratoconus now, what's important is to be able to identify that subgroup who are progressing rather than just treating everyone um, who's got keratoconus. A really, really, really neat stuff. Jared Hoffman, I thank you very much. It was a wonderful talk uh, and for being so very, very generous with your time with us today. Thank you. Thank you very much, Josh. It's a great pleasure. Thank you. I'm here with Vishal Janji. Vishal gave a wonderful talk. Interesting case. So this was a, a little three-year-old girl. I mean, as opposed to a big three-year-old girl, right? So it was a little three-year-old girl who presented. You, you, your center was what? The third or or third or fourth? Third, yeah. third or fourth ophthalmologist that she was seeing with uh, bilateral uh, recurrent, yeah, recurrent congested red eyes. Obviously, you know, three-year-olds, not that verbal. Um, although you mentioned earlier that, that it was unclear whether the onset was simultaneously bi bilateral. And she had had numerous treatments. Let me get you to, to flesh out the uh, case, then we can talk about it sure. a little bit more yeah. specifics. Yeah. So uh, the case was referred to us. Uh, so I work in Hong Kong. The case was referred from Macau. A three-year-old child had been to a few ophthalmologists and was being treated for allergic conjunctivitis, presumed viral conjunctivitis, and also some dry eye symptoms. So the kid had already used topical acyclovir ointment, was an olopatadine and artificial tear drops. And when they presented to us, surprising, the eyes were quite quiet. You know, the, the, the conjunctiva were clear um, in both, both eyes. And we actually sent the kid back saying that, well, probably it's, it's allergic conjunctivitis, but they came back a week later with one eye, one, one of the eyes was red. And the settle lamp examination, which was a bit challenging, so we used uh, the portable settle lamp, showed typical epithelial lesions uh, reminiscent of Tigesen's superficial keratitis. And that's why we knew that this is, this is a case of Tigesen's and probably it's happening in both eyes, probably not, maybe not at the same time. So I started uh, very low-dose fluoromethylone, which is fortunately available in our setup. It's 0.01%. Um, the fluoromethylone was continued. The, the child responded very well a week later. Uh, fluoromethylone was continued for about five weeks. And at that point, I, we discussed with the parents and we started restasis or cyclosporin 0.05% commercially available uh, eye drops twice a day. And we, uh, we saw the child a month later and then a couple of months later. Fluoromethylone was stopped, as I mentioned, artificial tear drops and restasis or cyclosporin twice a day. Kid has been doing very well the past nine months now. I have not stopped restasis yet, uh, but we do plan to do that at the end of one year. So yeah, interesting story, but definitely something to learn from this story. We actually uh, came across Two more cases, and the presentation we I presented in, in, in young children, in young children, five-year-old and a seven-year-old, um, with similar kind of picture, but unilateral disease, uh, thigus and keratitis. Same clinical picture. We we did the same thing: fluoromethylone and restasis in these kids as well. Now I, I've I've seen plenty of patients, grown-ups with thigusins. I don't take care of uh, children in the context of my own practice. Uh, but what is First of all, how, how common is is, is tigacins in, in little children? I, I hadn't, hadn't heard of it prior to your well, presentation. Yeah. So we actually went back, you're right, we actually went back and had a look at the literature. And 
Uh, probably two reports. One somewhere from the Middle East, I don't remember precisely, but uh, Bill's Eye Hospital, um, um, uh, Chris Rapuana has done, has presented some, some great work on Thai Gerson review, 10 year review. In their review, they actually have um, a few pediatric cases, which was interesting. But cyclosporin or 0.05%, as far as I remember, was not used. So, yeah, it is, it is rarely reported, but I'm not sure if that's because we are not picking up the disease or that's because most of these cases they would be treated off as allergic conjunctivitis or something else uh, during this time and that and we miss the disease huh and, and let let me let me ask you is is cyclosporin I mean, that's not my go-to drug for, for Tigesins. Of yeah. course, I'm not taking care of children, as I said. Is that part of, uh, if not your regular regimen for Tigesins, is it something that you regularly think of? No. Um, but yes, uh, we know that Tigesins will come back, or it te- has a tendency to come back right. at least. So even adults sometimes, um, we tend to use cyclosporin if the patient comes back four times a year with four recurrences and patients do have their own uh, uh, skepticism about using corticosteroids on a regular basis. So it's, it's just like another steroid sparing eye drop in this setting. Huh. Yeah. Interesting, interesting stuff. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, this is really cool, cool case uh, cases. Uh, I'm, I'm delighted that you, you spoke on this on this topic. I certainly, I certainly learned a lot. Vishal, I want to thank you very much for for, for bringing this topic to us, uh, for being so very generous with your time with us today. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Jared Sutton is professor of ophthalmology at the Sydney Medical School Foundation in Sydney, Australia. Vishal Janji is Associate Professor of Ophthalmology and Director of Cornea and Refractive Surgery at the Chinese University of Hong Kong in Hong Kong. Ask questions of Dr. Sutton, Dr. Janji, or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Write to me with your questions or comments at josh at iWorld.org. As seen from here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.